Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. A special episode this week. Uh, this week is Anzac Day, so we're going to focus on something pretty important for, uh, for Anzac commemoration in France. It's the Australian National Memorial at Villers Bretonneux, the most important Australian memorial to the First World War in France. And joining me to talk all about it is my co-host Pete Smith. Pete, welcome. Hey Matt, nice to be back again. It's a good one, mate. Between us, we're responsible for sending a lot of people to this memorial. I uh, I organise it from Australia through my tour company, and then you guide them to the Australian National Memorial in France. It's it's I mean, it is the essential site on the Western Front for Australian visitors, isn't it? Well, I think uh, more than Australians, because we now have the Sir John Manor, Monash Centre, which we're going to obviously talk about. Um, and it's such a superb location close to Amiens. So it, everybody, I think everybody should uh, should visit the Australian National Memorial, as they should the Canadian National Memorial, etc., etc. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great location and one that uh, we both know very well. I like these ones that we do make, these, um, these sites where we walk a specific site across uh, rather than crossing a battlefield we walk through a site we visit a memorial it, there's, there's something special about dedicating some time to these great monuments on the western front well i think this one especially there's an awful lot to talk about so if we were to add it into a battlefield walk where we were actually walking the battlefield then this would be a a, a two-hour episode <laughs> that's a good point there's there's so many of these places that i think we it's not that we just scratch the surface but we uh you know there's there's only so much time in a day and um, maybe that means multiple visits are the, are the way to, to take in some of these great memorials. I felt a little bit the same when we did Vimy Ridge, for example. That site is huge. You could spend hours. It was the same when we did Tynecott Cemetery. You could spend hours walking around and still not take it all in. So maybe multiple visits are the, are the, are the key to getting the most out of these great sites. But, uh, but today, the National Memorial, 
the Australian National Memorial in Billersbrook. Now, why don't we start? Tell us where we are, Pete. Why is the memorial located where it is? Okay, well, we're very close to Villers Bretonneux. I'll explain uh, why in a little while. And um, a little village called Fouillot. I think it's Fouilloy is what it looks like, and I think it's pronounced Fouillois. Let's go for Fouillois. Who knows? Um, it's a suburb of Corby. That's much easier to say. So it's between Corby and Villers Bretonneux. It's on a hill. Uh, during the fighting, it was known as Hill 104. Um, it's uh, just a, a gentle sloping hill, nothing spectacular. But the views from it are spectacular in a landscape that is fairly flat then to be on this ridge and certainly looking back towards Amiens you get a superb view all the way back to the city of Amiens and you understand why it was so important to uh, to recapture to hold this uh, this ridge which is what the Australians did in 1918 um, so we're talking about the fighting that took place here on the 24th of April 1918 so the very famous fighting uh, on uh, 24th uh, 25th Anzac Day so it's uh, yeah it, it was and that has to be one of the major reasons why it was placed here because it is a link to the landings in Anzac Cove, um, slightly obliquely, but it is still a link. Uh, very successful Australian fighting, stopping the Germans from getting any further, holding them there, forcing them back from getting any further towards Amiens, which was crucial that they should be kept away from Amiens. So it was a it was a location that Talbot Hobbs, who was uh, the general in charge of the Fifth Division. Um, he was an architect in civilian life, and he was tasked with a committee in finding locations for the divisional memorials, all five of them, but also with a, an eye on a national memorial. Where should he put a national memorial? And so Villers Bretonneux became a, a fairly obvious location because of that connection to Anzac Cove, because of the... I suppose the site itself, the fact that it's on a ridge with great views all around, can be seen from all over, um, and... Uh, that it had to include all of the divisions. So all five divisions needed to have been in this area and around Villers Bretonneux and the fighting La Hamel, which is uh, almost immediately afterwards, this is the area where the Australian Corps will really find its place on, on the battlefield. And so all of these things happening here. For a long time, it was suspected that the uh, uh, that the National Memorial would actually go on the ridge at Poissiers. And that certainly was tougher fighting and greater casualties there if you are putting in a memorial where you have a lot of casualties. Not always a good reason, I think, for placing a memorial, but um, certainly Poissier was seen for a long time that that would be the right place. But of course it couldn't be because it's not all of the divisions. You know, the third division is missing from the fighting there, as is the fifth division. So it was decided that this village Breton was the correct place to place the memorial. Peter, it's interesting when we talk, effectively what we're discussing here is a hierarchy of importance of these battlefields that Australians participated in, That, that which is the one that sums up the, the greatest achievement of the Australian forces during the First World War. And I tell you what, Villas Bretno certainly has to be up there, the famous counter-attack by the light of the burning village on the 20, 24th, 25th of April, as you say, the connection with Anzac Day. And, and the great work that was done in the surrounding fields by all the divisions. Do you think Villas Bretno, I mean, Villas Bretno now has de facto become the most important battle Australians participated in because of the location of the memorial? Is that a fair assessment of that battle? It's a very good question. It's a very important battle because it is stopping the Germans. It's also, I have to say, it doesn't just involve the Australians, the Canadians, the British. Every, everybody's involved in stopping the Germans at uh, this point. But very specifically here, I don't think any. I don't think any of those countries were there, Pete. I think it was all Australia, wasn't it? We, of course, we stopped it was. the Germans single-handedly. <laughs> of course, I've been to the Monash Centre. I've seen. I've seen that. Ah, yes. We'll talk about that later. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yes. So I mean, for Australia, it is an important location, and I think it was an important location because Australian 
troops will effectively be in this area, moving backwards and forwards across this landscape as Australia slowly pushes the Germans back along with everybody else. As we push the Germans back from the 8th of August onwards, the Black Day for the German army. Well, Australian troops are being pulled out the line, being rested. The uh, rear echelon guys are bringing up supplies. They're all in this area. This becomes an Australian landscape until well beyond the end of the war. No, it doesn't just finish. People just disappear. So this is a landscape that would have had Australian troops uh, all over it for a long time. And it's one of those issues that you have to say, would the people of, of Villas Bretonneux, who are no longer there, you have to say they've been evacuated, be aware at that time, immediately after the fighting, that it had been Australians that had effectively saved uh, the town from going under German occupation again for a, a long period of time. And the answer would be, well, probably not. But when they started to come back after the end of the fighting, when the Germans are being forced back, then they would have, have met all of these Australian guys in this area and it would have become very obvious that this had been uh, an Australian uh, campaign around their village. So I think the connection is, is more than just the fighting. And a lot of people think it's just all about the fighting, but it isn't. It's about Australians being in that area for some considerable time after the fighting has moved away. It certainly is an Australian hub, this area in 1918. And I remember well, the first time I visited Villas Bretno, I was introduced to this incredibly old lady in the village who was a small child at the time of the war who was talking about her recollections of men in big hats, was how she put it in French, Walking around the streets of uh, of the towns in the in the area, so this this certainly is a very uh, you know a very strong Australian connection throughout 1918 in this region. It's it's very sad at the moment. Uh, this uh, this week is uh, is the Anzac Week, uh, coming up to uh, to Anzac Day, and I've just seen photographs online and photographs in the newspapers of the uh, the village itself, Villas Bretonneux, all decked out with Australian flags and little kangaroos and things uh, all over the town for for themselves because there are no Australian visitors here, obviously. In fact, there are no visitors full stop. I can't even get there. It's too far outside of a, of my range of, uh, I can only go 10 miles. So uh, very sad, but they're still putting on the show for, for, for nobody. So I think that's uh, very laudable. And uh, it's a great shame that nobody can actually witness uh, the, the, there will be a service uh, in the, in this a very small service, private service, almost the mayor and a, a few people uh, in the, in the center of the square. There's nothing actually taking place. I don't think there's anything taking place at the memorial. Uh, and, and yet these people are still putting out the bunting and putting out the flags. Well, we should uh, we should pay our respects to the people of Villas Bretno here who do an incredible job. And long before Australians were coming for Anzac Day dawn services, it's only uh, 2008 was the first year there was a formal dawn service at, uh, at the memorial at Villas Bretno. Up until that point, the only Anzac services were the ones organised by the local people in the village. So for decades, effectively since the end of the war, the people have remembered in, uh, in Villas Bretonneux and they've done a wonderful job. Well, why don't we talk about the memorial a little bit, Pete, about the history of it? Because it had a it had a checkered, checkered history before it uh, became the grand memorial that we see today. Well, I think the first thing to, to comment upon is its inauguration because its inauguration tells you a little bit about what's gone on previously. It's not going to be inaugurated until 1938. So it's the last of the, of the big memorials to the missing to be built. Uh, and it's considerably last. You know, most of the others were finished in the in the late twenties, early thirties. So this is being finished just before the cusp of the Second World War, uh, which is very sad in a way. Um, so let's go back to the beginning and and and, and talk about. We've talked about Talbot Hobbs, the the the, uh, the officer who was tasked with finding that location. Well, by 1923, he'd kind of found the location. He'd reported back to Billy Hughes, who's the Prime Minister, who uh, approves it. 
And uh, I'll just put a little comment here that by 1921, the Ulster Divisional Memorial commemorating uh, the the Ulster Division fighting on the Somme had been constructed. And so that was a a large tower. So it's quite interesting to show you how quickly they got off the the mark. So have theirs completed by 21. And yet 23, we're still discussing where the Australian Memorial should go. We, We make a decision. Then we have to find an architect to design it. And it was uh, put out as an open competition for architects in Australia to uh, to try and cre- create a design. And a chap called William Lucas uh, was uh, successful. It was his design that was was actually picked in 1925. So we're moving on again. Um, unfortunately, two things are also going to happen. There's going to be the big financial crash uh, will take place of the Great Depression, which will mean that there's really no money to build to to in Australia that can be used to build it. And the second thing is that Hobbes himself and Sir Fabian Ware, who was running the Imperial War Graves as it was at that time, are not keen on the design either. So uh, poor old uh, William Lucas gets sidelined, effectively. He, he was not happy, uh, to put it mildly, but he gets sidelined. Um, 1929, the French approve the location and approve a rough idea of the des- design of what it's going to look like. 1930 is when it is suspended completely, so it all, it all stops. 1935, so you can see how we're leaping forward all the time. 1935, uh, Lutyens uh, basically is picked, um, and uh, Sir Edwin Lutyens, he's the one that designed several other enormous memorials, perhaps perhaps the most famous for the British, the Teatball Memorial to the Missing on the Battlefield of the Somme. And uh, he will be tasked to uh, to complete the the site because he'd already designed the cemetery and the um, reception buildings I think I'm going to call them uh, at the uh, at the entrance to the uh, to the cemetery they'd already been created and designed so it seemed to make sense for him uh, to get the uh, uh, the commission not didn't go down overly well in Australia there were an awful lot of architects in Australia that felt it should have been an Australian architect that just designed the Australian memorial I'm not sure I agree because Lutyens was at the height of his power he was the number one architect within the British Empire I suppose and so as far as you know the, the, the guy to do it then he's got the right credentials that that's for sure we get to 1935. He starts that uh, design. The, the design, the design is passed, and the building commences. And then it didn't take that long. 1938 inaugurated. But so that's the history of the memorial. So it was a, a slow process, stop and starting. Uh, but again, what we get in the end is a superb memorial. I have to say. Well, why don't you describe it to us, Pete? So for people who haven't seen it, uh, they can know uh, exactly what we're talking about. And like always, um, jump on uh, Facebook and uh, and the web. And have a look at pictures of these things we're talking about, because until you until you can picture it in your mind's eye, you are you're probably not aware of what a spectacular memorial it is. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, talk us into the site. So first of all, we've just parked our vehicle and we're going to walk into the site. Now, this has changed in recent years because with the building of the Sir John Monash Centre, this visitor's centre, well, they don't like us calling it a visitor's centre, it's uh, an interpretive centre. This uh, this centre that's tucked in behind the memorial has meant result there are also a, a reception area where there are toilets and you can uh, buy your headphones if you need because, uh, well, more about that as we, as we go in, but you can actually uh, be guided uh, by... Uh, headphone set on your your phone uh, across the the whole site so we're going to enter the site through these reception buildings up a, a stairs and directly in between the two reception buildings we have the stone of remembrance so 
Um, for those who have listened to the podcast before, they'll, they'll know that for a larger cemetery, you you will have a stone of remembrance. It looks a little bit like an altar, but it's uh, it's known as a stone of remembrance. And you'll have the large cross of sacrifice. And in this cemetery, we have the largest cross of sacrifice. And all of this can be seen from the stairs as you're walking in. You're looking into the cemetery. So... There are two. There are two parts to this: the cemetery and the memorial, and and they form a, a site in their own right. But of course, when was the cemetery completed? Well, the cemetery was completed by about 1928 at the latest. So it's ten years before the memorial is completed. So the cemetery was already here, and the cemetery is not an Australian cemetery. Now that surprise surprises a lot of people. They think, well, this has to be an Australian cemetery because this is a an Australian memorial, which it is the Australian memorial to the missing of France and to the efforts of Australia on the whole of the Western Front. So it's a very important memorial, but the cemetery is a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery. So it's a, a mix of everybody. We'll do the numbers uh, slightly later. Um, but uh, that's what you're, you're looking at. So you walk into it, two big reception buildings at each side as you as you go up the stairs. And again, people look at these reception buildings and say, well, what are these for? They don't do anything. Yes, we have the registers in there that tells us who is buried in the cemetery. Um, well, they're shelters. You have to think that these architects thought through the practicalities. I suppose you have to remember that these architects thought through the practicalities. And so when you arrived at the cemetery and it's pouring down with rain and you, you've, you've walked from parking your vehicle, which was a little further away in the old days, into the cemetery itself. And you can go into these reception areas, shake out your brolly, take off your mat, give it a shake and wait for the weather to, to ease to ease before you walk into the cemetery and up to the memorial, which is at the top end of, of the site itself. When we walk in, we normally walk up to the uh, Stone of Remembrance and about face, because one of the things that you need to do is to start to understand why they picked this actual location. Yes, it's where Australian troops will fight and fall as they approach and start to climb up Hill 104. But it's, it's also a superb location for the view back up the valley. And this valley is the Valley of the Somme that will take you all the way to Amiens. And of course, that's what they're defending. They are holding the Germans from getting up this valley. So you can start here by also looking behind and uh, do a little bit of a talk about Villas Bretner on our left as we look towards Amiens. Uh, Corby on the on the right so it's a superb location it's very white I have to say I haven't described the color of it this is Jurassic limestone and again one of the issues that I suppose changes the way that it looks is that originally it was decided or it was hoped that the stone would come from Australia now you can imagine William Lucas as he designed it he is designing this Australian architect he is designing it using Australian stone but the cost was astronomical you can imagine to to build this a normal enormous um, uh, tower and the walls that go with it then the cost would have been too much so the stone is in fact uh, in fact French Jurassic limestone so it looks very much like the headstones it's the same stone that the headstones are, are made out of well let's continue our walk Pete because I think it's a little bit unexpected as well that you sort of crest this this hill and you're walking through a very large cemetery towards this memorial you don't actually see very much of the memorial when you first arrive because it's sort of hidden behind the hill but um, just talk us through what it's like to make that you know, a relatively long walk. It's probably a few hundred metres from the front of the cemetery all the way up to the memorial. Well, I think it's clever as well, because even though I've said this is not an Australian cemetery, because we are in the Australian National Memorial, the first two blocks of graves on each side of you, so there's a big lawned area in the middle, um, the blocks of graves on each side of you are all Australian. And so straight away you get an Australian feel. You're amongst, the, uh, sadly, the dead of Australia almost immediately. 
Um, and that puts it in its place. After that, it starts to change and you'll get a combination of everybody you'd expect to see. So soldiers from, um, uh, from a few from South Africa, Canadians and, and British. And you have to say that the split is in the main is Australian, Canadian and British. Um, there are only, we're going to only see the graves of two uh, New Zealanders. There are only two New Zealanders, uh, buried here. And they are also the only two uh, Second World War casualties. Uh, they were air crew in a mosquito that uh, crashed very close, and they they were buried here. So there are only two New Zealanders in the the whole of the uh, of the cemetery. Um, and as we walk up the graves on each side, you can stop and go and uh, read some of the inscriptions. And of course, if we were to start discussing who's buried here, then this would certainly go on for a lot longer than it's 45 minutes or so. Um, we will talk about a few of the, of the characters buried here later on. Um, you then get to the Cross of Sacrifice. And the Cross of Sacrifice is that there were various size uh, crosses. This is the largest one. It's got a, a sword on both sides. So that Crusader sword uh, is on both sides of the Cross of Sacrifice because the cemetery is now all around us. It's on both sides of us and in front of us and behind us. And what we can also see is that the Cross of Sacrifice has been patched up slightly. There are dinks and dents and batter marks in it, and you can see where it's been filled in areas. And, of course, this cemetery was inaugurated and completed in 1938. Well, sadly, it will fall straight back into a battlefield again in 1940. And the French had an observation platform at the top of the tower, because that's what we're walking towards. We're walking towards a tower. And at the top of this tower... The, uh, the French in 1940 had placed an observation position, and so it was actually uh, became part of the battlefield of the Second World War and was very badly damaged. And so we can see some of that damage that's been patched up. And in fact, a decision was made to leave some of the damage so it's very, very uh, visible. So you can see some of the bullet hits on some aspects of the architecture. Even some of the graves have chips out the back. If it damaged the front and the inscription, then the headstones were replaced. But we can see that damage on the back of the uh, of the headstones as we continue the walk towards the memorial. The ground's now starting to level out slightly. We've climbed uh, up two flags in front of us: the French flag, it's their it's their uh, their landscape, and the Australian flag, as you'd expect. Now they are outside of the cemetery. They are part of the memorial setting. Uh, because you're not allowed to, one of the decisions that was made was flags will not fly within cemeteries. So we are now just leaving the edge of the cemetery and approaching the memorial itself. One of the things I wanted to say about that walk, Pete, and that was brilliantly described, thank you for that, is that when I was first visiting this, it was a very shaded uh, tree-enclosed cemetery as you walked up. There were, there were huge trees all the way down the cemetery, and you actually were walking under the boughs of these trees. And then there was a decision to cut the trees down. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that because, as I understood it, they wanted to replace the trees in preparation for the centenary in uh, 2018. Um, but the last time I visited it, the trees were still pretty small and spindly and it completely changed the uh, the look of the cemetery. It did indeed. And, and it didn't just change the look. It, it made it a little bit more uncomfortable. This is obviously a ridge. It's it's quite uh, open. And when the wind's whistling across there, which it obviously it does quite often, then there were also quite high hedges uh, on each side and they were removed as well. And the trees were the horn beams, uh, good solid trees. Um, and it, it gave, as, as you quite rightly said, it gave an utterly different feel to the cemetery. Much more bleak. It felt bleaker to me. Now, the trees have been replanted. There was, there was a worry after they'd been removed that they would not be replanted. And, and I suspect, actually, and I don't know for certain, but I suspect they possibly were not going to be replanted because there was a cost element to having trees. They drop leaves, they drop branches, they disturb graves. 
and I'm not so sure that a decision wasn't made that that it would be you know, it, it would look better without them, and and certainly would be easier to to manage without them. Um, but anyway, whether that's the case or not, uh, certainly a lot of people complained the trees were put back in. But we're got, we're looking at another you know, ninety years before they'll be back to what they were like uh, in their in their prime. And there was a discussion that took place that said the trees had been removed because they were becoming dangerous. They would well, I, I watched them taking these trees down. There was no rot in them. There was nothing wrong with these trees whatsoever. Um, so I think it was a, a decision that was made. Uh, uh, perhaps quickly and per- perhaps uh, uh, wrongly, but anyway, uh, uh, in a few years' time, a very few years' time, a lot of years' time, we will have the trees back again, and it will be back uh, as it had looked before. But it certainly did alter it considerably to what it had looked uh, previously. It's quite extraordinary how it changed the the feel of the cemetery, and um, you know, in, to, in the negative, it, it was a when I, as I said when I first started visiting it in the early two thousands, it was an absolutely stunning sight with these huge trees. And now it is a very exposed, windblown site. So again, I'd encourage everyone listening to jump on the web and have a look at the then and now photos to compare what it was like. But hopefully, as you say, it won't be too long before those trees are at least in some shape or form um, back to a to a to a style that they were before. I have to say one other thing. One other thing I should just say is that it, interestingly, uh, yes, they gave you protection from the wind, but it can get very hot there as well in the summer. It's all relative, I, I understand, for Australians that are listening to this podcast. Uh, but it's um, it does get quite hot there, and you do need shade. And certainly, that was the other things you could stop underneath the trees as you as you walk through the cemetery, telling little stories about some of the, the soldiers that are buried there. Um, and uh, and now for the whole of the walk that you do up until you get to the m- memorial itself, then you're you're fairly much in open sun and uh, yeah, not not quite as, as as pleasant as it used to be. Well, let's walk now towards the memorial because by this stage, once we've we've reached the flags, we can see the whole memorial in front of us, and it's a, it's an impressive structure. It is indeed, and and it needs to be because this is the memorial that commemorates Australian effort. Now, I'm going to be very careful when I explain what we're actually looking at in front of us. So, we're looking at a, a high wall. Um, how many meters high would you say, Matt? Matt? Uh, I'm not very good at my meters, so yeah, it's probably fifteen. Yeah, yeah. So, fifteen meters high wall uh, runs in front of us, le- left to right. It has a uh, again entrance uh, or buildings at each end, which are shelters again, originally designed to be shelters. So, if you walked up through the cemetery, you got to the top and it started to rain again then you have little shelters there as well um the tower in in the middle it's a, a mixture of classical architecture and art deco 1930s art deco so i quite like it if you like 1930s art art deco then you'll you'll enjoy the tower and the memorial itself emblazoned on the top of these walls uh, we get all of the battle honors for australia on the western front and this is what confuses people i'm going to come back to that in a second uh, this is what confuses people, that the names on the memorial of the missing, because this, this, these huge walls in front of us carry the names of the missing, it's the missing of France only, and yet the names above it cover all the battle honours, including those that are in Belgium. And those soldiers, Australian soldiers who are missing in Belgium, they are on the Menin Gate. So it just confused people a little bit. They don't under, understand straight away why we've got all these names underneath and we've got then the names of the campaigns in Belgium above. But it's it's because this is the national memorial and the second use is as a location to place the names of all of those Australians who are missing in France and they are named on the walls. Now, going back to the battle honours, there is one battle honour missing and most people will notice it straight away because it is now seen as such an important action. It's the very first action of Australians on the Western Front and it's the Battle of Fromel, and that is not on there. 
So you have to immediately ask yourself, why isn't it on there? If this is a listing of all of the battle honours, well, you could say Framel has its own uh, uh, memorial at VC Corner. Um, there is a memorial to the Australian missing, and it's also a little memorial to the, the fighting there. And, that, and we also later on built, in recent years, have the Cobbers Memorial Park. So we have two memorial parks there. Does it need to be named on here? Well, of course it does. The reason why it's not on here is because there was a attempt, I suppose, to downplay the Battle of Fromel because it was such a disaster. So many casualties, so, so pointless uh, an action. There was a, a, a certain an effort to downplay it. If you've done that at the time, if you've done that during the period of the Great War, then at the end of it, when you're planning a memorial to commemorate Australian effort, you can't then suddenly say, "Oh yes, we uh, perhaps we should mention Fromel because it's not it's not really been talked about uh, at that period, so it's not on there." And I think it's it's a shame, but it tells a story in its own right. We could do a whole podcast on the issue of the naming of Fromel and battle honours to do with Fromel because it's been such a controversial subject for so long now. The, the very quick summation is that the the nomenclature committee that, that that at the end of the war they had to, they had all these complicated battles and actions and they had to try and group them and organise them in some capacity, and so the committee that did that decided that Fromel would go under the Somme battle, the Somme 1916. That would be the battle honour because it was to support the fighting in the Somme, even though Fromel is nowhere near the, the, the Somme. And you're right, there was certainly an attempt there to just to look away a little bit. I won't say cover-up. A lot of people said there was a big cover-up. It wasn't the case at all. But it's certainly an attempt just to to look away from Fromel a little bit. And I've got to say, I understand the thinking at the time. In, in With a century of hindsight, we now feel like it was disrespectful to the men who fought there. But I've read lots of accounts from the men who fought there and not too many of them wanted to look back on Fromel with any sort of glory. They looked back on it with absolute horror. And I, I think it was quite distinct from other battles they'd fought in where just nothing was achieved except thousands and thousands and thousands of people were killed. And so I think the nature of, for even the people who fought at Fromel was that it was just such a disaster that it was not something to be commemorated. And so for better or worse, the decisions were made that Fromel would not be listed individually as a battle honour. On, on so many memorials, with a, cu- with a couple of key exceptions. Most notable is the 5th Division Memorial at Polygon Wood in Belgium, which includes Fromel as the first battle honour. But with that exception, the men who fought at Fromel and their commanders uh, did not want to highlight it. They did not want to cover it in glory as a battle honour, and so you don't see Fromel in many locations. And certainly the Australian government wouldn't have wanted it to be brought to the attention of the Australian public, if possible, because it would have killed, uh, in a, a country that is has a volunteer force, it would have uh, killed volunteering. It wouldn't have done a great deal of uh, to encourage people to, to volunteer with what was perceived as the disaster of, uh, of the fighting at Gallipoli. Uh, and then the first... Uh, action that Australian troops are involved in on the Western Front to also have a disaster, that would have, I think, caused a big problem for for recruiting in Australia. I always think it's important, Pete, that when we look back on these things that we, we don't put our current lens over the decisions that were made a century ago. And I think anything you look at, any of the information you look at, suggests that just about everyone involved in the Battle of Fromel felt at the time it was such a disaster, it sh- we should just move on from it and not... You know, highlighted as a, as a place of, of glory or where there was great achievement. It was just a disaster and people wanted to move on from it. And you see that across the board. You see that in the, the, the reports from the men. You see it in battle honours. You see it in constructions of great memorials like this one. So, you know, a very interesting point. But, of course, all the other great battle memorials, uh, battle honours are there for the Australians on the memorial. Tell us about some of the other ones that you'll see as you as you scan the walls, Pete. 
Well, it's everything. So it's, it runs from left to right. So it's running in, uh, in date order. So on the left hand side, we have Poiziers, if that's perceived to be the very uh, first action. And uh, then Bulkor, uh, and on we go. I'm desperately trying to think of the order. Bulkor, then, uh, Messine, then, uh, Third Eep, and it would be the Men in Road, then Polygon Wood, then, uh, you carry on, Matt. <laughs> and then on, and then onwards. <laughs> and onwards, yeah. And then onwards. And then, and then, of course, all yeah. of the 1918 battlefields. And by the time we get into 1918, we're starting to get into some very specific and very important, um, but difficult to recall off the W. Exactly. Actions. But, but all, yeah, as you say, from 1916 on your left, scanning all the way around all of the battles leading up to the end of the war and Mont Brahan in 1918, the final Australian action. So quite, it's, it's, it's a good summary. I, when I take people there, it's a, it's a great, you know, one size, one opportunity to just scan the entire breadth of the achievement of the Australians in one place. Yeah, it's a great aid memoir. And uh, so that's easy, running from left to right. But so are the names. So obviously, if you're a relative, and we take many relatives to this memorial, and we've got to then find the names where they will be. Well, uh, Australia... Uh, very simply ran from the the first battalion to the 60th battalion and that's the order they're in so on the left hand side we will start with the first and the 60th is on the right hand side and then we have things like the cores in uh, in front so the engineers and the artillery are also right at the, the start the flying services at, at the start and at the end we have things like the machine gun corps uh, trench mortars uh, medical services so it means it's very easy to find somebody because it's also alphabetical uh, by rank within each battalion. Now, it sounds a little complicated, that, but it isn't. It means that you can, as long as you know the rank and the battalion of the person and the name, obviously, of the person that you're looking for, you can find those names on the memorial uh, uh, quite easy. Now, oddly, I've been struggling to try and find out how many people are on that memorial. Now, you think, well, that's easy. Surely we must know exactly how many people's names were put on that memorial. Well, we do, but is that correct for, for now? And the answer is, no, it isn't. So what do I mean by that? Well, of course, they have found and identified multiple soldiers in that period from when this was uh, inaugurated in 1938 to, to modern times, to today. Um, and they made the decision not to remove those names from the memorial because it, it's unsightly. And you have to say there are uh, there's only one that I can think of where we did remove the names, and that's the memorial to the missing um, at Teepval, uh, Lutyen's other great memorial, and there they took the names off for a period, and so we can see patches. You literally chisel a name off because you found him. He's no longer missing. He shouldn't be on the memorial to the missing. You put a, a, a little a patch in there to cover over where the name was and, and move on, but you can see the patches, and so it looks unsightly, and you have gaps in the, in the list of names. So the decision was made at this memorial not to remove the names of people that have been found, so it means that the total is not correct any longer. So I've got down here 10,982 10, names. Those are the names that are on the memorial. But now there's only 10,710 who are still missing. Uh, and that's up to 2021 uh, at, at, this, at this present time. So it's reduced considerably because we've been identifying people by either finding their graves or being able to identify them by information about uh, their headstone. So, in other words, a soldier has got a headstone. It says an unknown Australian soldier. And we now, uh, through a method uh, uh, of looking at documentation and paperwork, have discovered that we know who he is. And so those names have mentally come off the memorial, but in reality they are still on the memorial. Does that make sense? It does indeed. It's, <laughs> I, I think that was very well said. It's... it's uh... 
it's it's the nature of remembrance, isn't it? It's ever changing, and it's some wonderful work has been done by people who've mostly just private citizens who've gone out to try and and basically with bookwork try and uh, try and identify some of these people. So it's 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 constantly changing, and I'm sure it will in the future too as technology improves, as as building expands, you know, as building expansion continues, and and, and more of these battlefields are, are encroached on by modern buildings. They'll find more bodies as they build roads and gas lines and houses. And also the technology that enables us to do research will uh, will we'll discover who more of these people are. So I think it's quite wonderful that it's a, it's a constantly changing uh, situation with the names on the memorials. It is fascinating because it does make it very difficult. And in, in fact, in preparation for, for this podcast, I, I went to lots of different websites and looked at notes and and different different figures, different figures. I've got about eight different figures from different locations, but I think it depends on when that article was written. Because if the and also you have to say we've also realised that we've missed people from the memorials of the missing. People are missing who are not on the memorial, so we have an element of adding people to it as well. There is an addendum to this memorial, so we get people coming off. And we get people going on, so it does make it rather difficult to keep a to keep ahead of the game. Nearly eleven thousand, I think. Yeah, is the that's and that's that's what it says. I think, nearly yeah. eleven thousand names on the <laughs> yeah. memorial. Yeah, broad brush. And, uh, I think it says one. it says that it even says that on the memorial it itself uh, yeah, in the it in the inscription that uh, the names of nearly eleven thousand <laughs> men of Australia who are recorded on the memorial. Tell us a little bit about the tower, Pete, because it's a. Uh, Quite a striking feature of the memorial. Yeah, but so before we actually climb up the tower, because we can walk up the tower, I'm very often asked, is there a lift? And the answer is, no, there isn't. I'm then asked, how many stairs? And I don't know off the top of my head. And lots of my clients have told me over the years, have, having counted them, but I still can't remember how many stairs, but it's quite a few, uh, to put it mildly. And I don't necessarily go up there always myself. No, I, don't. I, I loiter downstairs and show people names on the memorial. That's my excuse anyway. Um, so we can climb up, up the uh, up inside the tower. And as we enter uh, through a beautiful gateway, the gates are open, so you don't actually notice them, but it has beautiful uh, bronze gates that, that are open. We can see some of the damage that has been left on the tower because the tower itself was pockmarked by shell fire and machine gun fire during the Second World War. Anything that damaged the naming on the panels... Uh, then it was repaired. And interestingly, for years, I told people that uh, new panels were, were placed. But about, oh, it must be about 10 years ago now, they removed some of the panels to actually uh, replace them because they've been damaged. So the recent panels were removed. And when they removed those panels, we realized that the original names were beneath them. So they didn't remove them. They refronted the whole memorial. So the original damaged panels are actually behind the ones that you now look at uh, uh, today if you if you were to visit. So it's, it was quite fascinating to actually to see that. So anything that was uh, that had a name on it, anything that w- was crucial to the actual, uh, I suppose, the design, the concept of the memorial, then that was uh, repaired and replaced. But they left lots of bullet hits on the tower. So it uh, it puts it in. It, it, I think it enhances it. It tells you a little bit more about later history, the history of the the building of it, and then the damage and and, and what happened during the Second World War. And then, then in its own right, it becomes a memorial to those that fought and died in the area during during the Second World War. Um, so I, I I quite like the fact that they they uh, kept some of the damage to it. Just as a matter of interest. The cost of the renovations in the 1950s were half the price of the original building uh, cost. So it was originally quoted at £30,000 to build, and it was £15,000 to renovate it in the, in the 50s. So nearly half, half of the cost again uh, to uh, repair the damage of World War II. So we walked to the top of the tower, 
and we get spectacular views in every direction. It's a great place to go, so it can be a bit drafty at times, but it is it has got cover above you. So if it's raining and it's not windy, then you, you don't get wet at the top. We have an orientation table, a bronze orientation table, or it's it's uh, think about it, it's stone with bronze inset. Uh, telling you how far to Paris, how far to Melbourne, how far to London. So it's it's just interesting in its own right. And to all uh, the major battles, it gives you direction as well. So that's kind of helpful, so you know which way you're looking. But we can look in one direction. We're looking towards Amiens, the place that's been saved. Uh, to If we're looking in the direction of Amiens, to our left is Villas Bretonneau. We can uh, see where the fighting has taken place. To the right is uh, is down to Corby, which was held, was not taken by the Germans in 1918, uh, but becomes again an important centre for Australian uh, effort and future effort from there. So we can see to Corby. If we about face and facing the direction that the Germans are coming from, we see a gentle slope and just over the top of it, we can see the top of a church spire. And it actually looks like a little triangle, but it's the top of the church spire where the fighting on the 4th of July took place at uh, uh, La Hamel. So that is the Church of La Hamel. Um, and that's why we can look in that direction. So every direction we are uh, surrounded by uh, Australian effort, really. So it's a, it's a great place to spend some time at the, uh, the top of the tower. You need to, because you need to catch your breath. When I used to walk up on a regular basis, which I must start doing again, because I need the exercise after this layoff, um, I find that when my clients are asking me questions, when we immediately get to the top, it's rather difficult to answer <laughs> because I'm struggling, <laughs> struggling for oxygen. But it's, uh, yeah, all part of the fun. It's uh, well worth uh, the efforts uh, to get to the top there. It's an extraordinary view when you get up to the top there. And we should mention as well that this is where Anzac Day services are held every year on the 25th of April. And the one of the great Australian experiences is to see a lone bugler at the top of that tower highlighted by a spotlight in the pre-dawn light. Um, playing the last post, it's absolutely extraordinary, and um, it's 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 one of the you know one of the most important places for Australians to go and climb that tower and look out on just that Australian area of of achievement and sacrifice. It's it's always a bit confusing to me though because I, it feels like the location of the memorial it's north of the town of Villas Bretno, so it feels it feels when you're standing there that the Australians must have moved through Villas Bretno and then come in this direction as their next stop as they advance. It's actually not the case at all. They advance from the fields. Um, sort of immediately in front of you when you look out of the tower uh, and and swept through and, and took Villas Bretno and the fields on either side uh, and you're now in the fields north of the town. So it's a little bit confusing for people when you talk about the direction that the Australians came in their attack and even indeed where the trench lines were, where the front lines were uh, because uh, because of the location of the memorial in, in relation to the village, it can turn you around a little bit. But just a wonderful spot to stand and as you say, not just the fighting at Villas Bretno but the, the, all of that in, incredibly important fighting around the time of the German Spring Offensive and indeed the big the start of the big advance that, that ended the war. Just a great spot. It is a great spot. And interestingly, you can see enormous distances. And on, on a good day, um, and preferably with a pair of binoculars to help you, you can actually see Lutyen's uh, Memorial to the Missing on some battlefields. So the, you get superb views. It's it's easier doing it this way. You could, from that memorial to look towards Lutyen's Memorial on the Somme, you can see it. Looking back... You can't see the actual Australian National Memorial if you're doing it in reverse because it's a very light colour and it doesn't stand out, whereas the Lutyens Memorial is made out of brick on the Somme, so it does stand out and you can, you can, you can spot it. Uh, so, yeah, distance. You can, you can see an enormous distances. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, well, it was planned very carefully and it works. Well, we're going to go back down the stairs now, Pete, and we're going to take a left in through a little archway and we're going to visit the newest feature of the... Memorial Land Cemetery, the Sir John Monash Centre. Let's talk about this. And I'm 
I have opinions about this. A lot of people have opinions about it, and I'm going to give my honest opinion about it as we as we walk through it. So let's start by describing what it is and what it what it does, and then we can talk about you know its its importance and significance. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I mean, the great luxury that I have is I live here, um, and uh, obviously I guide here, and I, I've been up there even when I'm not guiding. I pop up there for a, a coffee uh, and to have a look around the memorial and, and to go and look at the building of the Sir John Monash Centre. And we all had an idea of what it was going to look like, and we all kind of were worried about how it would disturb the actual, if you want to use the term, the sanctity of the memorial and the cemetery. Would it alter that feel of it? And it most certainly doesn't, to the extent that I've had people that I've met later on who have been up miss the sign to say where the Sir John Monash Centre is because it is tucked in behind the memorial and also it's dug into the ground so it's all, all almost below ground level it's it's just slightly above but it has that feeling that it's below ground level and you can miss it completely so it was very very cleverly designed to be behind the memorial and not to impinge on on anything that was there. Um, just the, before we go on a little bit, Pete, I just I'm, I'm going to go back a step from an Australian perspective here, just to explain why this even occurred in the first place. So, the, Australia since the probably 1990s has been the most prolific builder of memorials on the Western Front, and, and for for good reason. That for far too long we overlooked the Western Front, the sacrifice on the Western Front. It was all about Gallipoli. Anyone who went to Anzac Day services in the 1990s would know that uh, Gallipoli was the only place that Australians had ever fought in their entire military history. It seemed that there was a real focus on Gallipoli and absolutely not enough on the Western Front. So that was redressed, particularly in the 90s, when we started building memorials, the Memorial Park at, at Framel, for example, the, the Memorial Park at Hamel, uh, and a whole range of other memorials sprung up on the Western Front to redress that imbalance. Um, a great thing. It, it, it now means that every Australian major battlefield is marked. You can go there and pay your respects at all the, all the Australian battlefields. As time went on, you know, and governments get involved, there was this real feel now, and especially as more tourists started visiting the battlefields from 2008 onwards when they held the first Anzac Day dawn service here. It's when my company started we, and we started seeing thousands and thousands of Australians go to the battlefields, which is wonderful. And like always, when this starts to occur, governments get involved. And I'm not, I'm not saying this critically. I'm just saying this is just what happens. Governments get involved and say, well, we need infrastructure and we need facilities and things like that. So... In the last 10 years or so, the Australian government has been quite active in building what they call the Remembrance Trail across the Western Front and, and spending a lot of money upgrading museums and, and, and making sure there's access and toilets and food and beverage and, and linking all these sites together in the, in, the, in the hope that people can walk from one, or not walk, but travel from one to the other to visit all the key Australian battlefield sites. But there was constantly a feeling for every government that came along that there was something missing. There was no key Australian museum or place to go to have the full story told. And so for a long time, they decided that at the National Memorial at Villas Bretno, eventually they would build an interpretive centre which told the Australian story. Uh, and that opened a couple of years ago uh, on the site. It's the Sir John Monash Centre, interpretive centre. And uh, it's quite a remarkable place. So that's the backstory as to why it's there. Um, let's carry on, Pete. Why don't you describe, you've, you've been, I've only been there a couple of times. You've been there dozens of times. Why don't you talk yep. about exactly what it is and what it does? I'm going to describe the entrance and then I'm going to describe what what, what it does or, or my perception of, of what it's doing. So I can't dis explain to you how cleverly designed this is. It, it is very clever. So you're going to walk uh, basically down a gently sloping uh, uh, slope to the right or left uh, of the memorial. Uh, this, they vary it sometimes as, as the entrance. They can both be used uh, as entrances. 
as you start to walk down this slope, you get the feel that you're walking into a trench, and that's obviously intentional. Um, and you also start to hear trench noises because they have piped music playing into these areas. Well, it's not music, piped noise playing into these areas. And it's machine gun fire and it's uh, soldiers. You can hear soldiers shouting and, and talking. And uh, and you start to get the feel that you're actually entering a, a trench. It's bare concrete um, uh, with, uh, with the imprint of, of timber on that concrete. And then if you look carefully, there are various bricks and things set into the concrete. And the bricks have things, names like cobbers and lice and uh, smoker and uh Ferby and uh, there's all sorts of, of little things like uh, uh like that uh, like the names and uh, and things in, impressed into the brickwork so it's just very clever just just attention to to detail and then you um you approach the doors the entrance doors uh, uh, as you get to the bottom they open automatically so the uh, you don't put no pushing against doors and you enter a very marble and open central area where there are the staff will greet you and make sure that you're kitted out with headphones because you need them you have to have a a, a telephone and a, a headphone uh, before you're sent on your way into the actual experience uh, uh, into the uh, the center itself fantastic for other reasons there are toilets there is a, a a great coffee there you can sit down and so from a guiding point of view this is where it actually is interesting. I don't have to do anything. From the now on, I don't do anything other than make sure that my clients are going to have a look at it. So let's just think about what are they actually going to go and see. Well, they're, they're going to see the story of Australia on the Western Front in in great detail, right the way from recruiting in, in Australia. There's a section about recruiting. And this is done through a series of archive film footage, uh, a bit of reenacting, some cab- uh, reenacting film um, some cabinets that are full of uh, some uh, artifacts, um, and then very clever floor displays of of maps. It's all singing, all dancing. You have to say, in the building process, I was able to go and have a look at the computers that drive all of this. It is like being on the the deck of the Starship Enterprise. It is truly cutting edge technology. To get round it all, to watch every. Bit of film footage there to go and look at uh, the artifacts that are on display. There's also a central uh, film that you go into a room where it, it, the doors close behind you and smoke comes up through the floor and to give you that feel of, of battle. Very, very clever. But you're looking at four hours. If you were at least to stay in there uh, from start to finish, four hours. So that would be, I suppose, my, my, my biggest issue. Uh, of of the site itself is who can afford four hours to be in one building when you're visiting the battlefields and I would say very few uh, perhaps some of the independent travelers who have got lots of time maybe staying in Amiens for multiple days and going out and visiting all the different aspects of, of what they want to look at uh, connected with the Great War and and other things of course um, then that that's fine but for those of us who are on a battlefield tour who have lots of things to go and see and we want to get out on the ground and walk the the landscape that the Australian soldiers uh, walked then it it, it it works, but it means you have to pick and choose what you're going to look at when you're when you're in the site itself. It's a good description, Pete, and I'm going to give my opinion on it now. And you don't even necessarily have to give your opinion on it since you have to go and <laughs> every day go and work with the people that are there. I'm a little bit far more removed. I'm I'm not a fan. Let me just come out and say that. I'll also say that I'm also on my own with this, that every, just about every Australian I've ever taken there absolutely loved it. So I am completely on my own on this, but I'm not a fan of the interpretive centre. 
for a number of reasons. Firstly, the technology. Like, they've just gone a technology route. There's, there's no signs on the walls. Everything is just screens and technology. Firstly, I think that will date very quickly. I think what we call cutting-edge technology today in five years is going to look a bit clunky and not work so well. Secondly, I have never taken a group of people there where the bloody thing worked as it was supposed to. The first 20 minutes or half hour of the visit is mucking around with the staff trying to get the apps and headphones and smartphones and everything to work so that people can look at it. But the main thing I'm going to say about it is I'm I'm disappointed that there's no context. And I don't want to criticise just for the sake of being critical, but we have a... We have an obligation here to remember these men that we're we're talking about, and I find that there's there's no context whatsoever. It's completely the Australian story. So they'll talk about the Battle of Pozieres without explaining how it fit, fitted in with the larger Battle of the Somme, or what the British were doing at the time and the Canadians. and And I know that that would start to get it beyond the scope of what it's doing, but it is a completely Australian focus. And I also think it's in the wrong place. If this museum was in Melbourne or Canberra at the Australian War Memorial, it would be an unbelievably brilliant addition to our understanding of the Western Front because it shows so much about what goes on on the Western Front. But I think here, when you're in the middle of the battlefields and when above, you know, just just near you is this huge memorial and there's also a very large cemetery with all these bodies lying there, do we need videos and smoke coming out of the floor and dramatic music and sound effects to understand what it all means? You've just walked through a cemetery with more than 2,000 bodies. You've just stood in front of a memorial with 11,000 names on it. Do you then need, are we, do we seriously live in an era where unless we've had the video experience with the reenactors and the smoke and the, and, the, and the sound effects, we don't understand what it all means? And I would like to think that we're smart people and we do understand what it means that when we see those headstones, when we see the inscriptions on that memorial, that we are smart enough to understand what it all means. And so I think if this memorial was back in Australia, if this, sorry, this museum was back in Australia and telling the story from the Australian War Memorial or from the shrine in, in Melbourne or from the Hyde Park Memorial in, in Sydney, I think it would be an absolutely wonderful addition to our understanding. But on the battlefields, I think the all singing, all dancing is perhaps a little misplaced. Anyway, that will be my relatively diplomatic uh, discussion of it. But I, as I said, I am on my own. Everyone that ever goes there comes out going, oh my God, that was just so amazing to see what the Australians did on the Western Front. I think there's an age issue connected with with this is what I would say. My experience of taking lots of people in there over over the uh, the years it's been open since uh, 2018 would be the younger you are, the more you're liable to enjoy it and the quicker you'll get through because you kind of somehow can pick the bits that interest you, you walk through, you understand the technology, you get it all working quickly and you're through. The older people are, and this is not being, being ageist at all, um, they struggle with the technology. They struggle with things like if you've got hearing aids and getting those to work with the uh, with the headsets. They struggle in, in, in watching that much film. There are not many seats in there, so it means that you have to keep moving. Um, and they don't like standing up for that long. And I tend to find that by the time I've ordered my coffee and I've sat down in the in the cafe there uh, uh, to put my feet up, then some of my clients have been through and are joining me already, and they tend to be the older uh, the older ones. So that that would be uh, one issue that I would have, and and I do tend to agree with some of what you've said, Matt. I do uh, uh, do agree that wouldn't you rather be out on the on the the landscape rather than in here? I think that's that, that's it. that's absolutely correct. But what I totally agree with is the lack of context. There is no context at all of what anybody else is doing at any time. Um, and in fact, so one of my clients, uh, who was Australian, but pointed it out, he said, Pete, Pete, have you noticed? I think there's only one depiction of a British soldier in the hall of the display and he's running away. 
And I thought, ah, mm, yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, so uh, it, it, it is very Australian. It needs to be. It's in the Australian National Memorial, but perhaps it could do with a little bit more context. Having said all of that, I do, it has grown on me the longer I've been going. And I have, I have come to actually to enjoy going, going there, partly because it does good coffee. Um, but it does tell a good story, but it, it, it just, as, as, as Matt quite rightly said, it, is it in the right place? And I'm not sure as well. I'm not sure it is totally in the, in the right place, but it is net, it is absolutely essential you go and visit it. Uh, so you can make up your, your mind. Some people love it and some people don't. Um, and I do tend to find that there is no middle ground. It is. I really like it. I've enjoyed every second of it. Oh, I didn't like that. It was horrible. Um, that there's no real middle, middle ground, but thankfully for most of my clients, they fall into the, I really, really enjoyed it. And can we not stay a little bit longer? And I say, no. We are here to walk on the ground and go and see the battlefields. Follow me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great thing. I've come to know all the staff over the years. Fantastic staff. I have to say that, uh, the previous director who has, uh, who left, um, at the start of this pandemic, uh, being replaced, uh, she was called Caroline Bartlett, uh, being replaced by uh, Rebecca Doyle and poor old Rebecca. I've not met her yet because we're not allowed to go up there. And so 18 months later, she has totally been managing the place in the middle of this this horrible covid so she's had since she's took charge she's not had a single person over the uh or hardly and certainly not a single australian over the uh, uh the doorstep so yeah very sad i know i know i do know rebecca and she's very competent and um it must have been, it must be a very tough gig rebecca if you're listening it's a shout out to the tough gig that you're doing but hopefully it won't be long before australians are back and i don't want to be too critical i mean a big part of the controversy with it was it cost a hundred million dollars to build this thing. That is a lot of money, 100 million Australian dollars they spent to build it. And you certainly would never say it's complimentary to the battlefields around it because one minute you're looking at, at beautiful English gardens in a Commonwealth military cemetery and headstones and talking about the First and Second World Wars and the next thing, it's video screens and reenactments. But lots of people like it and it's that's it's there and it's an essential site to visit if you're on the Western Front. The one thing it does do very well is it, encourage, it is a site now that people can go to as a one-stop shop. If you are a tour group that's in Paris and you, you don't have the time to get up to the battlefields, you can now go to Villas Bretonneau and see the memorial, uh, see the cemetery and go to the interpretive centre and get the full story of Australia on the Western Front. So that is very effective. So it, it certainly has a place. But um, everyone who goes there will visit it and and give us feedback about your opinion about it if you've been to the, you know, the John Monash Centre. I love the architecture. I have to say, it's. Uh, I think uh, I, I'm. I was never particularly until recent years a fan of modern architecture, but this is cutting edge, edge modern architecture, and it's very clever, and I really, really like it. And again, one of the things that you must do, and it's not really signed very well, is you must go out the back, up the stairs at the back. Uh, and then go and walk through the gardens around the the sides where you get information about the d- uh, divisions as well. And the final thing they've done, which I, I really do appreciate, is the gardens have become real wildlife gardens, and they've encouraged they they put wildflowers and things there, and and almost throughout all of the year it is a wild garden out the back and and grasses and things, and there are bees and buzzing, and it's a great place to walk through uh, uh, after you've been to through the uh, the actual interpretive centre it, it itself. So. Overall, I'd have to say I'm a fan, really, but I'd rather be on the battlefield. Well, very well said. Pete, it really brings us to the end of our tour. Um, I see in the notes that you sent through, you've got a couple of small little pieces there that I, I think are quite interesting, particularly the, the headstone of Philip Ball. 
Sergeant Philip Ball military medal. But that, you know, nice spot to end <laughs> the sentiments expressed on his headstone. Talk to us just a little bit about these additional things that you've got, uh, you've got it, in your notes. It is. Well, I've got some little notes here about, uh, we didn't mention the inauguration. The inauguration, it was done by by the king. So King George VI, he actually inaugurated it. And I think his wordings were very clever. They rest in peace while over them all, Australia's tower keeps watch and ward. And I think that was very, the sentiment was excellent. And also it was broadcast live back to Australia. So, uh, uh, you know, 1938, we're in the period where, where communication is, is a lot better. So, so broadcast uh, straight back to Australia. Um, and then the other th- comment I wanted to make was, we talked about them before, the, the private inscriptions on the headstones. And again, there's some beautiful ones and there's some very moving ones. And, that, and this is one that people tend to go and have a look at. Uh, it's on a, the grave of Sergeant Philip Ball, MM, awarded the, the military medal. And his uh, parents uh, decided that what they wanted as the uh, their private epitaph on the headstone was, I fought and died in the Great War to end all wars. Have I died in vain? And I think you have to remember that that would have been written at some stage in the late 20s, possibly even the early 30s when the rise of the Nazis was coming and and it was becoming more and more obvious that there would possibly be another war. And uh, sadly, of course, there there was. Uh, so you could say he did die in vain. Uh, I like to think perhaps not, but his, uh, his family uh, had that put on his headstone. It's uh, the, the the walk through the cemetery at Villas Bretno is is quite extraordinary. Just there, there's some incredible headstones on there, and and just a range of, of sentiments expressed. It really is a, a remarkable place to walk through and spend some time reading those headstones. So don't spend too long in the interpretive centre. Uh, spend your time uh, wandering back and looking uh, through the cemetery because it really really is worth it. And Pete. Just an essential site for Australian visitors, an essential site for all visitors. I sent a group of Americans there recently who really enjoyed it, and um, it's it's just a, a fascinating place. And and thank you for taking Australians there, and and your compassion and your your and your sentiments you express about the Australian achievements on the on the Western Front. And we'd really encourage when everyone can get back to the battlefields that this uh, this is a site you go to, uh, particularly if you're interested in the Australian involvement. So Pete. Looking forward to, uh, to to you hosting uh, people again on the battlefields. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for, uh, for your contribution. Yeah, pleasure, Matt. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.